Well, we are on Romans chapter four this evening, and we will start off with our usual prayer, and then we'll hand it off to Reed Davis to guide us with the help of St. John Chrysostom. So let's pray first. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts so Master loves mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments. The trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ your God, and to thee do we ascribe glory to thy Father, who is from everlasting, and all holy good and life-giving spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. 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 Thank you, Father. Thank you. Okay, so into chapter four. Um, would someone be willing to read to us verses one through five? Sure. Uh, go, Philip. Very well. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thank you. Um, now, here, St. John Chrysostom reads the apostle <clears throat> as um, sort of having made his argument up to a point, and the way he summarizes it is that St. Paul has est established that all are guilty, all have sinned, Boasting is excluded, and salvation comes only by faith. And as he continues his argument, what he's going to try to show us is that this salvation that is being offered to us is not one full of shame, but rather one that is glorious. Now, this is a theme that he's talked about in the past. Um, because a, a salvation full of shame would be, again, essentially a pardon that leaves the person, you know, guilty and disgraced, but no longer punished. Um, and again, I think we may have had some examples in real life of, uh, of that with certain presidential pardons lately. Um, but um, that rather... Uh, this salvation is not simply that, but it is one that genuinely brings to us not just salvation, but righteousness and indeed the righteousness of God. And as St. John says, anything that is of God, to be of God, has to be glorious. Um, so what this chapter is about in St. John Chrysostom's mind is largely about exhibiting the glory of this salvation and the gloriousness of faith. Okay. 
Um, also, he continues to argue what he's argued in the past, um, again, showing how the, the Jews who have come to believe, and especially those who haven't, uh, are, have no superiority over the Gentiles who are coming to Christ in faith. And so, for instance, there in verse one, which in uh, St. John's copy parses a little differently, uh, where it says, Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. Uh, I think he reads it as our father according to the flesh. And St. John takes that as a comment, uh, especially directed at the Jews to say, now, there's a fatherhood of Abraham that's very, very important, and it's not the one according to the flesh. And in fact, one of the major topics of this chapter is going to be fatherhood. Um, and Abraham's fatherhood and who comes under that. So do you have comments or questions or observations so far? So is St. John in bring, discuss when he brings, when Paul brings Abraham into this, does St. John talk about this? Because Abraham is an example of, since he's, he's, clarified at the end of chapter three that the righteousness of God uh, is apart from the law. But so Abraham is before the law. Right. And I don't think that John Chrysostom ever makes that comment in his homilies on chapter four. Interesting. Um, I know that Paul says that, and I'm not remembering if it's in Romans or Galatians or both, but he certainly makes right. that point that the promise came four centuries before the law. Right. Um, but neither Paul nor John Chrysostom says anything about that in this chapter. Okay. Um, what Paul here is going to focus on much more is the timing of the promise to Abraham relative to circumcision because of course it was abraham who first received circumcision but also um john chrysostom takes it in sort of an interesting way he's trying to argue that we are justified we are saved by faith and not merely saved but made righteous this is a glorious thing and so how does he do it he says well if you took a man who had never done any good works of any sort and said that he was saved by faith, well, that wouldn't be particularly persuasive. But when you take a man like Abraham, who is so rich and abundant in his good works, to say, oh, but he was saved by faith, that makes quite a point about the gloriousness of faith relative to works. Sort of goes to that old adage that we of um, when you give somebody something, they don't really appreciate it, but when they work for it somewhat, they tend to appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of what um, St. John sees the apostle doing here is trying to say that, yeah, I mean, works have a certain glory, but it's tiny compared to the glory of faith. And so he's taking someone who's glorious for his works, namely Abraham, and saying, and yet it was by his faith that he was made righteous. So 
is, oh, whenever... is Chris is Chrysostom's commenting about this glory aspect? Is this about the boasting? In some ways, yes. Sometimes he takes the boasting and glory as being roughly talking about the same thing. And, and the same of like proving God's righteousness because he will justify according to faith and not by the law or? Um, I don't know that he really talks about God's being righteous because of doing that, uh, but just the, the glory of our being made righteous and not merely freed from punishment. You know, we talked about that last week at the end of chapter three, where the Apostle Paul talks about um, God did these things through Christ so as to be righteous, uh, so as to be just in the man who justifies the one who has faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, and I mentioned there that as an evangelical and on my own, I'd always taken it. Well, OK, so God had to satisfy the demands of righteousness so he wouldn't be unjust. And that's why he had to sacrifice his son. But of course, John Chrysostom reads it completely differently, saying that just as God is not merely alive, but life giving just as he is not merely rich, but he enriches the poor. So his justice is so overflowing that not merely is he just, but he makes just the unjust. And that's how he demonstrates his righteousness or his justice. That's right. That that verse in chapter three is, is sort of, he is so as to be not merely just, but also the one who makes just the one who has faith in Christ. Right. And I know the first time I ever read that as an evangelical, that was gripping. <laughs> it's like, this is a picture of a God who is a lot gooder than I had ever thought of, whose goodness is just so completely overflowing that it cannot but you know, pour out and bring its riches to all who, whom it can. Right. I always oh. kind of took uh, the... I mean, they say works can't get you there, but then you hear somewhere else that just faith alone, you have to have some work. So I always felt that to have the two together, because somebody could do all this work and then say, well, look what I did. Didn't I earn something? Yeah, but mm -hmm. your faith was nowhere where it needed to be. So it's sort of a balancing act. I'm not talking 50-50 balancing act, but you know, a, a good recipe might have a pinch of that and a dash of this and a whole <laughs> lot of faith, you know, so right. it somehow they balance each other out. Well, and we of course, you know, you know and, and, and of course, you know that John Chrysostom is never going to talk about good works and the need for them. But in this chapter, as he reads the Apostle Paul, the emphasis is on contrasting works and faith. And so rhetorically, that's the point he goes after. Um, he doesn't really try to tie it together with, oh, but now we can't say to neglect work. Um, so, you know, you sort of have to take this within the context of his larger hom collection of homilies to, you know, to get the big picture. That's rhetoric. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Was that the mistake that people make when they read they just okay. We're just talking about faith here, so that's it. And there, and so, and that he wants to dwell just on a small part, so you really understand it. But the whole picture is still yet to come. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and it's interesting reading this chapter because the, the picture of faith Chrysostom gives, you know, I think would make any evangelical happy, <laughs> his emphasis on faith and salvation by faith. And yet at the same time, somehow the picture he draws of what faith is by the end looks very different from what I imagined as an evangelical. So uh, th th there's a lot of good stuff here. Also, I wanted to mention last week, uh, we were reading some of the passages in chapter three, where uh, the apostle was trying to counter those who would say that we have to do good, we have to do evil in order for good to result. And um, some who were even slanderously reporting the gospel message as saying, oh, you know, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so we ought to sin more. Um, and I thought it was interesting. After we had the study, I was catching up on my blog reading. It's discovered Father Stephen wrote on this very topic about a week ago on his blog. So anyone who was interested in a further uh, examination of that topic in the modern day, you'll find some lovely stuff in his blog entry. Okay, so let's... Um, look at verse two here and there's a good quote uh, from chrysostom here i want to read to you but let's get into this first verse two says for if abraham was justified by works he had something to boast about but not before god now again the way i had always read that was well you know he had some something to boast about but before god there was nothing to say we don't really have any boasting to do sort of, okay, so drop boasting and get on to faith. But the way John Chrysostom reads this is to say, no, no, there are two boastings. There's a boasting by works and there's a boasting by faith. The boasting by works doesn't give you anything to boast about before God. That is no glory before God, but the boasting by faith does. And so that's the greater glory, if you will. And so he sees this as two things to glory in, works and faith, and now he's going to contrast them. Uh, or maybe the right word is compare under those circumstances, whichever it is. Um, here's kind of a longish quote, but it's a really great passage, so I'll uh, beg your patience while I read it. For he that glories in his works has his own labors to put forward, but he that finds his honor in having faith in God has a much greater ground for glorying to show. For it is God that he glorifies and magnifies. For those things which the nature of the visible world tells him not of, in receiving these by faith in him, he at once displays sincere love towards him, and heralds in receiving these by faith, oh, sorry, missed the line, and heralds his power clearly forth. Now this is the character of the noblest soul and the philosophic spirit and lofty mind. For to abstain from stealing and murdering is trifling sort of acquirement. But to believe that it is possible for God to do things impossible requires a soul of no mean stature and earnestly affected towards him. For this is a sign of sincere love. For he indeed honors God who fulfills the commandments, but he doth so in a much greater degree who thus follows wisdom by his faith. The former obeys him, but the latter receives that opinion of him which is fitting and glorifies him and feels wonder at him more than that evinced by works. For that glorying pertains to him that does aright, but this glorifies God and lies wholly in him. For he glorifies at conceiving great things concerning him, 
which redound to his glory. And this is why he speaks of having whereof to glory before God. And not for this only, but also for another reason. For he who is a believer glories again, not only because he loves God in sincerity, but also because he has enjoyed great honor and love from him. For as he shows his love to him by having great thoughts about him, for this is a proof of love, so does God also love him, though deserving to suffer for countless sins, not in freeing him from punishment only, but even by making him righteous. He then has whereof to glory as having been counted worthy of mighty love. I get lost quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to read it. It's a little easier reading it uh, because you can see which he's and hymns are capitalized and which aren't. No, even when I do, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but a lot of times the way they talk is just, it's hard on me. Right. It's, well, it's, I got to have these discussions. It's a scholarly and rather dense translation. And Victorian. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess to try to, you know, sum it up, the point is, to obey God's commands, this is a good thing, and you have a certain glory in doing this, but it is vastly more glorious to look at God and say, he can do things and intends to do things that are impossible. That when we begin to believe that, we have a much more just conception of God, a more accurate conception of God, one that properly wonders at him and glorifies him than when we simply kind of follow some basic rules like not stealing and not killing people. Other thoughts or comments? I guess that's what the law sets up when you look at the Old Testament is, you know, here's your Ten Commandments and here's some statutes and this and that and then uh, Here's what's in Deuteronomy or Numbers, and and so they just kind of had this. Oh, I just got to do this. So they almost became like robots, but uh, they didn't truly believe the power or understood the power of God because of it. all they knew was the law. Does that make yeah. sense or seem right? Or yeah, and it seems like sort of that was often sort of at their best the way they tended. Um, now, also, it might be helpful to understand the context. Um, in verse 3, it says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, does anyone remember the context in which that verse appears? What it was that Abraham believed God regarding? His son? That Sarah would have a son? Uh, approximately, yes. It's there in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And the specific promise to Abraham is, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. And it's then that it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. 
So the specific promise was that he would have descendants as the stars of the sky. Um, We're also going to hear allusions to chapter 17 of Genesis, where the Lord says to Abram, Abram, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And it's there in chapter 17 in this in as part of that same account that Abraham is given the sign of circumcision. So it's quite a few years off back in chapter 15, where he's told his faith is credited to him as righteousness. But as we begin to get down here where it talks about Abraham being the father of us all or Abraham being the father of nations or whatever, keep in mind that that was the thing he had believed that God, when God said it, that was counted to him for righteousness. Okay, so um, the apostle continues on the same line here in verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, uh, and verse 4 actually, and now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as a debt. And the way John Chrysostom reads this He's taking it that, well, some people would think, well, if it's a debt because I earned this, that's a greater thing. And if it's grace where someone has to give this to me unearned on my part, that's a lesser thing. And John Chrysostom says, no, no, the Apostle Paul is arguing exactly the opposite way. He says a man who contributes his own work receives his reward as though it's a debt. But the man who contributes faith also has God for his debtor. And in fact, for much greater rewards that are all summed up in the single word righteousness, which is not just a single reward, but a whole raft of rewards that comes in that word. So he he says again, for reflect how great a thing it is to be persuaded and have full confidence that God is able on a sudden not to free a man who has lived in piety from punishment only, but even to make him just and count him worthy of those immortal honors. And so he's saying, this is the greater thing, not the lesser thing. Um, and so then as he Which, makes the transition. Can I ask a question? Sure. That, that seems to be following from the logic of two and three, chapters two and three of Romans, right? In the sense of like, there's a certain glory or um, goodness in obeying the law, but the problem is, one can't actually fulfill all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a righteousness or a life that comes from the propitiation of Jesus Christ and faith that believes that God can do these things, that is a different than just the fulfillment of the law itself. Am right. I okay? I'm just trying to uh, grasp is even it's just so foreign if you grow up in a Protestant mindset. (laughs) So um, we see here the Apostle Paul uh, now begins to talk about David. And and John Chrysostom in an earlier chapter talked about how 
Matthew at the beginning of his gospel, at the genealogy there, uh, singles out David and Abraham for attention, so showing how in Jewish thinking they held a very special place. And so the Apostle Paul here is pulling out his big guns. It's like, well, if I can make my point from Abraham and David, who are you going to who are you going to bring in to contradict me? And so um, he quotes the the psalm, um, "Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered." And um, he says, first of all, blessedness sort of encompasses all good things it's even greater than righteousness and yet ultimately the apostle paul intends this blessedness and righteousness to be the same thing but also he he takes has an interesting take on verse seven where he says his lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered now does that sound like the righteousness that john chrysostom has made so much of up to this point or does that sound more like simple pardon? I think it sounds like Chrysostom because of belief that God can forgive those sins. Mm -hmm. Because it's faith that God mm -hmm. is can do those things. Am I shooting in the dark here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. The way Chrysostom reads it, he, he takes this as being sort of, this is simple forgiveness. This is just being, you know, released from the punishment. And the, his point then is, so if the man receives blessedness, this greater thing, just because he was excused from the punishment, then how much greater the righteousness that comes by faith so it's as though uh, what the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, look, if you read David, you'll see, see even all of this great blessedness comes to those who merely have their sins forgiven. How much more than when we've seen that in the, those, who, um, that those who share the faith of Abraham are in fact made righteous by faith, then you know, sort of much more abundantly they receive this blessedness. You know, if the, if the lesser Paul's was dedicated this portion, this chapter, into really bringing faith and that, uh, well, it did not Abraham have faith when he took his son, but did he understand faith? He was just obeying. Mm -hmm. And so maybe with the law, they didn't really understand faith. And so that's why he's trying to, he's spending this time to just single out faith and wave it around and make it clearer, apparently. I mean, that's certainly an argument that the Apostle Paul makes in various places. Um, the way Chrysostom reads it here, that's not so much what he's talking about, but I don't know that John Chrysostom was trying to explicate exhaustively all that the Apostle was saying either. So, you know, I wouldn't deny that that's here as well. Well, I know I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so would someone be so kind as to read to us verses 9 through 12? I can. Thank you. 
Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Thank you. Okay, so um, the argument here, I think, is fairly easy to follow. It's like, okay, so David says, blessed is the man who was forgiven. Okay, who's the man who's blessed by this? In particular, is that for the circumcised or is that also for the uncircumcised? Because David certainly was circumcised. So now the apostle Paul returns to Abraham and says, well, when the scripture says that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, at the time that happened, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? And do you remember? <laughs> you can't see me shaking my head, but I don't remember. <laughs> It's before he was circumcised. Yes. It's that's, in the, that's the axis of the whole argument he's got here. Right. Yeah, if you go back, it was in Genesis 15 that he was counted for righteousness, the faith was counted as righteousness, but in 17, quite a few years later, that he was circumcised. This is Abraham? Yes. Okay. Okay. And so what Chrysostom... So Abraham is... Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, so what Abraham sees here is that, in fact, the circumcised were made righteous by faith. Sorry, the uncircumcised were made righteous by faith before the circumcised were. And so he, he sees the Apostle Paul turning it around and saying, so actually the uncircumcised came into the household of God first, and then the Jews, the circumcised, had to be brought in kind of like guests. This is after Christ. No, this is before. Yeah, he's saying. Well, that's what that's saying back he's in saying, his, his basic argument is Abraham has, has the righteousness of faith before there's the law, before I gotcha. circumcision, I gotcha. okay. right? So. Basically, if your whole argument for justification is by the law, well, how do you look at your forefather Abraham and count him to be righteous? Because he had faith before he had the circle. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so this is why we don't have to be baptized, right, Reed? <laughs> um, that might be a hard argument to make. It's just, a, it's just a sign, Reed. <laughs> an outward sign of an inward grace. Yeah, I've been there. God forgive me. <laughs> I feel we're treaded on, on, on shaky water. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
okay, but actually that, that's a good segue to the next discussion is, okay, so why, if he was justified, if, if his faith was countered to him as righteousness, why was he circumcised later? And can you make it out from the rest of the passage we just read? Is it verse 11? Go ahead, Erica. Say that again. Uh, verse 11. Uh, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the face, which he had while still uncircumcised. Right. And then keep going. And he with might that. be the father of all those who believe. Right. And not, on, not only the uncircumcised, but also the circumcised. Yeah, so the way John Chrysostom reads this, it is exactly, it was a seal of the righteousness, not for his benefit, because he was already righteous through faith, but for the benefit of the circumcised, the Jews who would follow him, so that the uncircumcised who shared the faith of Abraham wouldn't push the Jews off and say, no, you're not part of this because you're circumcised. And Abraham was justified when he was not circumcised. And so he believed while he was uncircumcised so that he might be the father of the uncircumcised. But then he was circumcised so that he might also be the father of the circumcised who walked in his footsteps of faith. Right. So the circumcision was not for his benefit, but for that of the Jews. Sounds like Paul's trying to tell the Gentiles and the Jews to quit arguing with yourselves. Get yep. along. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think promoting humility toward each other is a big part of what he's up to. And Chrysostom goes on then to, to argue that, in fact, not only circumcision, but the law and the rituals and the sacrifices and the feasts and all of this were given to the Jews as you know, visible physical signs because the example of Abraham's faith was not going to suffice for them. And so he gave them these, the, the honor of these signs and symbols um, and, and rituals and all that it might entice them to pursue the realities that those signs and symbols were merely types of. And that circumcision itself was merely a sign or a type of faith. And so it was meant to lead the Jews to faith. And then, in fact, Chrysostom goes on and says, so in fact, they don't embrace faith. They don't even have a sign anymore because they've rejected the thing that it was a sign of. Hmm. So any thoughts before we go on? Kind of explains why it's so simple to get this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and all the years before I had the privilege of reading John Chrysostom, I was mostly aware of Romans, mostly that just I don't follow the argument. I don't know where he's going.
So could someone read for us the next three verses, 13 through 15, please? Okay. I will, I guess. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Thank you. Okay, so... Good luck. So, <laughs> any thoughts about... Uh, okay, so as Chrysostom reads it, the Apostle Paul is trying to address another possible objection to this exalting of faith. Does anyone have a thought about what that might be? That the promise to be heir of the world, to be the father, was going to be um, through the law and not through the righteousness of faith? Right. Or the way Chrysostom reads it is specifically that some of the Jews might say, okay, fine. So Abraham was made righteous by his faith. That's great. But we've still got the law and we'll stick with that. Right. And so what the apostle here is arguing is, not only was he saved through faith, not only can the Gentiles be saved through faith, but in fact, you can't be saved any other way. And if you embrace law, it's going to make faith void and it, the promise will be lost. Why? Because the law brings wrath? That's part of it. Yes, what he says... Um, so he's an anarchist. Is that what we're, you're telling me? <laughs> I'm still not sure I've got my mind wrapped around what Paul means by law. Yeah, I mean, there are times when it seems he's talking very definitely about kind of the law as the Jews held it in his day. Right. And at other times it does seem to be talking sort of about works more generally. Right. But I lean toward reading it more as kind of the law of Moses or the law of Moses as the Jews understood themselves to have it at Paul's time. So could, could I hazard an interpretation of 14 of what he mean? Like for Paul, Paul, those who are of the law are heirs. The idea may be kind of like what we encounter in the gospel, right? Like, this idea of we're of the law, we've inherited the law, we have, we are circumcised, we're fulfilling the law. That's why we are heirs. But for Paul, that's not why you're an heir, because you have been circumcised or received the law, but it's because you actually act and do um, the righteousness of God because of faith. Because you actually believe in God. Mm -hmm. Because you can have the law and do all the things of the law and have no faith. Is that fair as a... Because the law is just a tool? Like the, the, I, I don't understand. The law brings about wrath. How does the law bring about wrath? 
Um, Sorry, I'm probably pushing too. <laughs> no, that's fine. Well, I mean, I think that goes back to chapter three, right? Where he says, by the law comes knowledge of sin. Right. Right. And I think the argument there is essentially when you have the law, it points out that you're doing things wrong. Um, but it's not think, an active principle like faith that moves you and has a that actually has a relationship with God who can free you from that and live, bring life instead of death. I mean, maybe in some sense, because it seems like in commenting on John chapter, I mean, John, Romans chapter three, uh -huh. the uh, John Chrysostom read part of his saying that the apostle was talking about the feebleness of the law. In fact, right. he, he said this when he talked about, um, do we nullify the law by this faith? No, we establish the law. Right. He said the law was aiming at something, but it was too feeble to get there. Right. And so faith establishes by the law by accomplishing the thing that the law aimed at but couldn't do. So is this kind of the difference? And I don't know if this is Romans or elsewhere. I think it's in Corinthians for Paul, the difference between the letter and the spirit in a certain sense. That the law kills, but the spirit brings to life. I don't know. Because the way Chrysostom reads this chapter, it sounds somewhat more evangelical that he, he really does put works and faith to some degree in opposition here. Right. Now, again, rhetorically, I, I'm not saying this is his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. But that he sees that as being the argument that the apostle is making here. So he's sort of lumping in works, even to some extent, with the law. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It seems to so maybe maybe I'll just simplify it down to what I think is the nub of what I'm trying to wrap my head around, which is the law does not really bring you into a relationship with God. Faith does. So the law can give you like it's like a rule, it's like a manual, right? It's like here's the things you don't do. This is the penalties, but that's not life. That's not uh, forgiveness of sins that's not a quickening that that requires faith in the living god because the law is not god mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah i follow that um i'm trying to get like what's the meta thing that paul is trying to get to <laughs> behind it that's the really the engine driving this but do you think yeah, they had so much trouble back then <laughs> i think so well peter talks about how hard it is to read paul <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think the way Chrysostom reads this, the, the trouble with law and with works is that they don't properly magnify God's goodness and glory. That's what faith does, because the things that faith grasps about God are things that are impossible. So that, that impossible part is the difference? Right. And I, I so think the faith that can move mountains, a mustard seed, that kind of. Right. That unless we are 
unless that's the sort of faith we are practicing, our conception of God is vastly inferior to what he truly is. I see. So it's moving a, a relationship of God from like tit for tat. I've, I have accomplished X. So therefore I receive an A plus. Therefore that's righteousness to the God of the universe and my relationship to him. I can move mountains or like the faith, like the, the hall of faith in Hebrews, right? Like, to con uh, drive out a foreign army. I mean, all that stuff that that um, the author of Hebrews talks about, what faith is made of. Well, and I mean, Chrysostom's going to see the Apostle Paul really sort of talking directly to that here, as he does in Galatians as well, where he's saying, it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac, right? It wasn't that Abraham believed he would be the father of many nations through this son, Ishmael, who was born in the usual way of nature, but right. that he was going to be the father of many nations through a son born of his barren wife. Of promise, right, of faith. Right, of promise and not of the natural course of things. Right. And that this is the sort of faith that is the faith of Abraham that is the faith that saves us. Got it. So it's sort of like, if we aren't believing impossible things, then we're missing it. Interesting. Which from, I, I find kind of exciting and encouraging. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a kind of, you know, an evangelicalism in that. Like <coughs> the gospel is, do you believe in the God who raises people from the dead? <laughs> well, just in practice, I find as I get older, more and more, it's like, can I really believe in a God who's going to forgive me and is actually going to redeem my right. life? Right. It's, it seems less and less probable over time, you know? Tell me about it. Not about you, about me. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, was, what was the comparison we just made that changed? That God forgives you for... Well, repeat just, how you said that, that the sort the of... The first belief was one way, now you got another way. Of what God the, does for salvation is that the sort of things that need to happen for us to be saved are impossible things. And not merely saved, but in fact made righteous. So we have to believe things that are like impossible plus. Okay. And it is in that faith that we have a right conception of God and are following in the footsteps of our father Abraham that lead to righteousness and faith and salvation. Other thoughts? I'm, you know, I, I'm swimming with this too. But. I'm going to have to read Chrysostom is what I'm going to have to do. Yeah. Chrysostom's wonderful. And, you know, you'll discover I'm not doing him justice, but, you know, I hope everyone understands. Well, I can't imagine how th there's too much there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and try to finish pushing our way through, if that's OK. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so he goes on. Um, would, would someone be kind enough to go ahead and just read us the rest of the chapter 16 through the end? I'll go. Sure. Thank you. 
Oh, who's oh. doing it? Mark or Phil, Phil? Go ahead, Philip. No, go ahead. No, Mark. Doing you I like to hear you. Come on, skunk. <laughs> Thank you. Leave you. Let's go. Pepe. I'm uh, going to politely ask that you edit this out before we rebroadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom you believe, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations, According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was already since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And perhaps this will help make this a little clearer. Um, you know, first of all, it's by faith so that everyone may receive the promise, uh, not just to those who are of the law. But then at the end of verse 16, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, leaving out the parenthetical bit, the father of us all in the presence of him in whom he believed. Okay. So now we're getting back to Abraham being the father of many. And Chrysostom says something striking here. We, we speak of God as our father, so we are his children, right? Now, when we say we are God's children, we don't mean of physical generation as our earthly fathers are our fathers. Mm -hmm. And yet it's perfectly proper to speak of God as our father and we as his children. And he says, Abraham is our father in the same way, not by physical generation, but by faith. And so it is in this sense that Abraham is the father of us, is uh, of us who share in his faith, who walk in his footsteps of faith. Uh, we, God has made us the children of Abraham, just as we are children of God through faith. Um, and then he has this little tag, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This emphasizes, again, this notion of God who does the impossible. Right. And that our faith is in a God who does things that cannot be seen according to nature. And so Chrysostom follows this through, picking up in verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. And he says, well, what does that mean? How can it be contrary to hope and in hope? And he says, well, it's contrary to any sort of human hope. And so the Apostle Paul begins 
listing off all of the things that, according to just the nature of things, would tell Abraham, you are not going to have a son. And certainly not by your wife, Abraham, no, but your wife, Sarah. <clears throat> Both are true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, first of all, and, and Christensen lists list them off. Okay, first of all, Abraham did not have any stories about men before him who had had children contrary to nature. People afterward had Abraham's example, but he didn't have any prior examples. He recognized his own body as dead. He recognized Sarah's womb as dead. And one more thing, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God. God gave him nothing but the words, no signs, no miracles, no nothing, just I'm going to do it. Take me at my word. And so Abraham, with nothing but these words and all of natural argumentation against it, believes God anyway, that he will have a son through Sarah and be the father of many nations. And he says, you know, uh, uh, not only that he, he didn't disbelieve, but in fact, he did not waver or uh, Chrysostom's translation says he did not stagger at the promise of God. So he was fully persuaded um, and thus gave glory to God. And this is the sort of faith that was accounted to him as righteousness. Thoughts, comments? Ica's focus on Abraham about the deadness and life to then kind of work up to Jesus and his death and then life. Because he could have focused on different aspects of Abraham's faithfulness, but he, he focuses on the death aspect, mm -hmm. right? Like, because he believes God to leave his land. He believes, like, but he's focused on this giving birth and the debt, the deadness and the, the incapability, which is such a strong Old Testament theme, right? That this is just the, the hall of faith or, a, you know, go through, evolve, even up to, you know, for us, then, you know, the Theotokos, Joachim and Anne, and their belief in that they are going to have a child, even mm -hmm. the deadness of the womb or the inability to have a child. Yeah. And Chrysostom, he picks this up in verse 17, God who gives life to the dead and sees the apostle there, first of all, kind of uh, pointing in the direction of Christ's resurrection. But I hadn't caught it until you just said that. But he's going to talk about deadness of Abraham and deadness of Sarah as well. Yeah. And so he kind of picks up on the theme that's already where he's talking and then gives a little glimmer of, oh, and Christ raised from the dead too. Right. Okay. So then trying to wrap up here quickly, you'll pardon me. Um, verse 23, you know, Chrysostom says, now, okay, what about the people who say, well, it's all great that this happened to Abraham. What's this got to do with me? And so verse 23, now this was not written for his sake alone, but also for us. Um, and 
And Chrysostom, sort of classic Chrysostom, talking about 21 and 22, says, abstaining then from curious questionings is glorifying God, as indulging in them is transgressing. But if by, and he, you see him talking about some controversies of his own day, but if by entering into curious questions and searching out things below, we fail to glorify him, much more if we be overcurious in the matter of the Lord's generation, shall we suffer to the utmost for our insolence. For the type of the resurrection is not to be searched into, much less those unutterable and awe-striking subjects. And this is something Chrysostom often talks about, is this uh, curious questioning and reasonings. It's like, if God says it, just take it. Practice faith. Don't try to work it out philosophically how this could possibly be, because that would lead you astray. We've seen that over and over. But then he picks up verse 23 and talks about, and, and to the end, how the apostles' point here is that the Gentile who believes is not only not inferior to the Jew, he's not inferior to Abraham. And in fact, he has the advantage over Abraham because Abraham's faith was only in the type, whereas our faith is in the reality of Christ. And so... You know, Chrysostom sees the Apostle Paul just talking about the glory of this faith that we've had and the, the great glory that it gives to all of us. And he closes then um, by sort of reinforcing to those who would say, well, you know, can I really be forgiven for all of my sins, everything I was liable to punishment for? And he says, well, we see Abraham made righteous by faith and we have Christ who died for our sins and was raised up for our being made righteous. And so we have great grounds for, uh, for confidence in, in this forgiveness and in this righteousness. Is this saying, well, the, if a Jew does not accept Christ ever, dies and all that, they're missing the boat? Or if a Jew... Does because there are many going back there, like what Matthew was a Jew, uh, Peter was a Jew, whatever, uh, are still there's no advantage or there's no, um, I don't know, some like the Jews missed the boat because they stayed as Jews and didn't, uh, didn't see what Paul was saying or don't, even to this very day, don't see what Paul's saying. I mean, certainly saying that the, the Gentiles who have faith are the children of Abraham and the Jews who don't have faith are not. Because this is not children according to the flesh. And I think he's also saying the Gentiles who have faith suffer no disadvantage over against the Jews who have faith. Because, in fact, they suffer no disadvantage relative to Abraham. Does he does he talk at all anything about? I find it fascinating since justification is one of these things that's argued about so much that it's his resurrection that he's raised for our justification. Because usually justification is tied to the cross explicitly, but this Paul's talking about his him being raised up was for our justification. Yeah, I, and. Chrysostom says less there, or at least I'm not following it, than, than I would hope. He talks about Christ's passion being for the forgiveness of our sins. Right. 
um, I, I thought it was interesting, not his death specifically, but his passion. So what he right. did in the flesh. Um, and then simply says, um, what? For the purpose of his dying was not that he might hold us liable to punishment and in condemnation, but that he might do good unto us. For for this cause, he both died and rose again, that he might make us righteous. He just sort of states it without right. trying to give a mechanism to it. Right. Maybe he's avoiding curious questionings. Or they just don't have the kind of questionings that we have. <laughs> yes. They, they don't think... They don't have the debates behind them of the past five or 600 years. So any closing sure. thoughts, comments, or questions? It only gets easier from here, right, Reed? <laughs> that may be true, actually, in some sense. We'll have to see. At least till chapter nine. Right. Um, no, we'll, we'll, no we'll, peeking. Shy in the recording. Uh, let me just say one last comment. I thought it was very interesting, and this is my observation. In, in the translation here in the New King James, we see a few times the word imputed used. Like yep. verse 24, it shall be imputed to us. And um, of course, in certain Protestant circles, that's a very important word that we have yep. imputed righteousness, um, which I think I heard Andrew, Father Andrew Stephen Damick say, it means we get the reputation for righteousness without actually getting the real thing. But Chrysostom never uses that language. It shows up in some of the translation of his scripture, but that may be because it was Protestants translating, I don't know. But in his actual discussion, he never talks about any of it being anything but our genuinely being made righteous. which I think is striking. Mm -hmm. And that's as much as I had to say. <laughs> Thank you, Reed. Next week, we'll dive into chapter five. Thank you all. Thank you.